Well, thank you all for being here. And uh, I wanted to say I recently suffered a kidney stone. So was, um, and Josh said I could preach on whatever I wanted. And so I thought I would preach on David and Goliath because I have the, the perfect analogy of a small stone taking out a large person. And uh, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, Josh has graciously let me preach the next sermon in Revelation, which is equally as terrifying. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I also want to say thank you to Josh. I don't know where he's sitting, but um, he, he's been interpreting Revelation very faithfully and graciously. And I know there's a lot of crazy things out there. And I have read Revelation in a way that before that has not been helpful. So thank you for that. Um, well, when I was in between my sophomore and junior year of college, I took a summer mission to South Asia. Um, and we went to a country that's huge, and the predominant religion there is Hinduism. And um, if you've never been outside of the West to a, a country that does not um, have Western ideals or is very uh, religious in that sense you probably don't realize how many idols are in these places. On every street corner, you will see a little statue of one of the millions of Hindu gods. And I remember one specific instance. We went and toured a temple um, that was dedicated to three idols of prosperity. And um, it's so funny. In the temple, you go in, and on one side, there's a bank. <laughs> and then there's this central area with an altar to these three gods. Um, and then another interesting thing is that there's this room. And then behind the room, um, the, the, you can see the ocean. And the sea spray kind of sprays up on the walls. And um, locals will come in and stick coins to the wall. Because the sea spray dries and it's kind of sticky. So they'll try to stick their coin to the wall. And if your coin sticks to the wall, that is a sign of good luck. But if it doesn't, it's a sign of bad luck. And so people will come in searching for luck, hoping. These very, very poor people will come in hoping that hopefully these gods would have favor on them. And uh, this, this is a foreign idea to many of us here in the United States. But um, I have a proposition for all of us that... Uh, idolatry, which is the worship of false gods and idols, is one of, if not the most pervasive sins in the world, including today in the West. It's my proposition. And I want to ask you this question. Will you worship wealth? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read our text. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Would we rest in you and... Um, Learn from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, can we go to the next slide? We're, we're in Revelation. This is the third letter to the churches, and this one's to Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, 
so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus begins with an encouragement to those in Pergamum that they hold fast to his name even though they dwell in the place where Satan's throne is. Now, this has a number of meanings. In Pergamum, uh, it's the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to emperor worship. And uh, a lot of ancient Romans would see the emperor as God and sometimes were forced to worship the emperor. Pergamum was also uh, known for a cult of a god called Asclepius, the god of healing, and symbolized by the serpent. You know of any other serpent out there? Finally, there was a collection of pagan temples, and the, the most important of these was dedicated to Zeus. It had Zeus's throne was said to be here. And so, uh, not, not to mention that the Roman Empire was just filled with a plethora of gods, more than you can imagine. Um, and uh, Caesar and whatever emperor was considered a god as well, as I already mentioned, and so, at the, the reigning principle of the church in, uh, where the church in Pergamum was located is that you can worship whoever or whatever you want, as long as it doesn't upset the social order, as long as it doesn't bother the state. Um, and it, it's kind of a, a, a national, an international rule that when you have an emperor somewhere, they, you see their image everywhere. Uh, let me explain what I mean. So here in the United States, on our money, we have all our past presidents. And in the UK, they have Queen Elizabeth on there, and uh, the Chinese Yuan has Mao on it. And it, this is just all over the place. You see statues of the emperor. It's common. So it's as if Satan is saying, through all these gods in Pergamum, this is my city. Look, I have my carved images everywhere. I put these out there, and what are you going to do about it? And yet, Jesus praises the church for being faithful in the midst of all these idols. In the midst of all the car carved images, Pergamum stays faithful to the invisible God, Jesus Christ. And they're even faithful to the point of death. One of their own was killed brutally. And... Again, this is another thing that's really hard for us to imagine. We have to kind of step back into the, the minds of the early church. But uh, for 300 years, the early church was persecuted heavily, many to the point of death. And Tertullian, who was an early church father, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that wherever the blood of the martyrs is, the church grows. And uh, this is still true even today. Just this past June, 50 churchgoers were gunned down in Nigeria in a country where over 4,600 people were estimated to be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the church is growing, grows around the world. And despite all this persecution, the church still continues to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit. Cain can't kill us. The serpent can't kill us. Egypt couldn't. The Assyrians couldn't. The Babylonians couldn't. The Romans couldn't kill us. And today, Allah is not going to end the church. 
China, Russia, Venezuela, all these dictators who try to overthrow people and kill the church, none of them can kill us. And America can't kill us. America with her ideals and and American dream and shifting culture that's always shifting is not going to end the church. Nobody can stop God's kingdom. Oh, they can try. They can try to kill us. Satan can try to end our lives, to get us to turn away, to stop the church. But, you know, they killed Jesus, too. He rose from the grave. Our commander-in-chief was dead, and he is alive and reigning forevermore. And persecution will come again to the church in the United States. Maybe not now, but as we become more and more secular as a whole, as a country, um, the church will seem like a strange place. People will look at us, not fondly, but as enemies. And as we continue to love our neighbors, they will continue to persecute us. Even though this doesn't happen very much today. Um, And we must continue to hold fast to the faith. But John's focus in this passage is not primarily on the persecution. That is his praise for the church. Um, But he says that there is something far more dangerous for the church than persecution. And that is how the church worships in their doctrine, false teachings. And, And specifically, there's this whole thing with Balaam and Balak. What's going on there? Well, this is an allusion to Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Here, a Moabite king sees how prosperous Israel is and how many military victories they've had, and they're afraid that Israel's going to take them out next. So he does what any smart king would do, and he hires a magician to curse them. That, you know, that that seems like the logical option to me, curse the people of God. That, That doesn't really work out, though. Three times, Balaam tries to curse Israel, and three times, the Lord does not allow it. And instead, Balaam's actually forced to bless Israel um, to the dismay of the Moabite kings. What's going on here? He, he's, he's just so frustrated. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, Numbers 25 begins like this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Uh-oh. These invited the people to what? The sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Okay, so this is... Uh, uh, Food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, just like John was mentioning. Let's keep going. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. This is crazy. And the story ends disastrously. There is an instance where an Israelite is practicing a, a sexual act in the middle of God's temple. And the only way to end this plague is, is for one of the priests to, to kill them both. And 24,000 people died because of this. This is really intense. God hates idolatry and the things that people do with gods that are not himself. And later on in Numbers, we learn that it's Balaam who taught the Israelites to do these things. 
You see, it wasn't Balaam's attempts to curse the people that caused them to stumble, but rather his false teachings, getting them to practice sexual immorality and worship other gods. It's their own voluntary submission before the gods of the land that caused this. And in an act of physical adultery, the Israelites were also committing spiritual adultery with the God who loves them and cares for them and has never abandoned them. And they turn to idols and to sex and food, things that fall utterly short of the God of the universe. What Jesus is saying in Revelation is that this was happening in Pergamum. Some people, not everybody, but some people were worshiping with the Nicolaitans improperly. So the question of will you worship well if asked to the Nicolaitans or the people who were worshiping in Pergamum would be no, they were not worshiping well. In fact, they were doing the opposite. Um, And uh, Jesus says the consequences of this poor worship is opposition directly from him. Because idolatry, which is the worshiping of false gods, is in direct rebellion against the one true and living God. The consequences of idolatry, just like with the case of Balaam and Balak and and at Baal of Peor, has always been death and destruction. God opposes all false gods. It is the Lord's great patience and mercy with us that he puts up with any idolatry at all. He is patient, merciful, and gracious to his people. And, I mean, this, this is just so foreign from our modern mindset, but this was the norm for every single nation. And, and this is Israel's greatest struggle. Again and again, they keep moving into the promised land where people had these gods, and they keep worshiping them. Um, it's, it's the great struggle of God's people and um, this still happens today, too. I went to the website of the temple we visited, and there's a picture of it up here. So this is, this is happening today. All this is food, sacrifice to the idols. It's a lot. And uh, all this food is offered to idols in hopes that prosperity would rain down. Right? Why would the Israelites yoke themselves to Baal of Peor? It's because they wanted good blessings and a good life. Food sacrifice to idols was, it is today is still a real issue, and so is temple prostitution. That's still a real issue too. When I was in this South Asian country, we walked into the red light district for a time um, where there are many prostitutes, probably since they were young girls, It's just part of the culture. It's part of the city. I didn't even notice when we walked through. I had to ask someone, like, did we even go where we were supposed to go? But where there are symbols of luck on every door and window and idols in every shop, there is also sexual immorality that happens to these things all the time. Now, I want to make this proposal to you, that this kind of sacrificing to idols and, and sexual immorality, any kind of false worship that happens. We also participate here in the West because this scripture was written not just to the church in Pergamum, but to all churches at all time. And so uh, you might be saying to yourself, come on, seriously? 
there's no idols out here. Look out the window. I don't see any statues of, of Buddha or Krishna or anything else. Let's go to the next slide. So, uh, <laughs> so this guy, this guy, you may have heard of this guy. His name is Matt Stoney. Um, he does food eating challenges on YouTube. He has more than 15 million subscribers and has an estimated net worth, depending on what Google website you go to, of between three and nine million dollars. And he has everything that an American would want. He is rich. He's famous. He can eat as much as he wants once without gaining any weight. Look at him. Look at him. He's like ripped. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and you know what? Through earnings from ads and views, people put food before him every day and bow down to the idols of entertainment. And uh, I'm not saying food is bad or, you know, he's like especially terrible or anything, but, you know, we, we all do things like this. We all do things like this. Um, and what about cult prostitution? Well, all you have to do is walk down frat row on a Friday night and to see people, young men and women alike, selling their bodies and maybe even living for the idols of pleasure and drugs and socializing. And, you know, the Greeks had these too. They just called them Aphrodite and Hermes and Dionysius. Or listen to our culture's music. Have you ever heard that Chance the Rapper lyric that goes, skeet, 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 she do that thing for three retweets? That's all it takes. She does it for three retweets. That's the God, is social media and followers. That's all it takes. Or what about this one? This one's super popular. Uh, Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. You know, Christians have creeds and catechisms. We've got the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Standards, the Nicene Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism. They're all creeds. And the best of them, all they do is articulate the, the truths of the scriptures. They're glorious and helpful and a testimony to the heritage that we have as Christians. But false teachers have these sayings and slogans and creeds too. During the time of the Arian heresy, Arius, this is in the third to fourth century, he taught the heresy that Jesus was created by God as a man. And uh, would, he would go around the streets yelling, there once was when the sun was not. That's a terrible thing to say. And uh, modern, non-religious people have slogans and creeds too. We say things like, you do you. Or, follow your heart. It's essentially saying just worship whatever God you want. Do whatever you want. Or what about this one? Let it go. You can't hold it back anymore. Or, release your inner panda. Those last two are from Disney movies. So I, I took this picture of someone's, in someone's yard. They're probably like, why are you parked outside my house? But uh, so this says, we believe, sounds like a creed, black lives matter, no human is illegal, love is love, women's rights are human's rights, human rights, science is real, water is life, injustice everywhere is a threat to, injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's like, you'll get in a car accident trying to read all that going down the road. But, the, cra- the crazy thing about these is some of them are good things, right? Black lives absolutely do matter. Amen. I'm not trying to debate that. But what, what I'm trying not, not trying to do is debate every detail of this, but rather prove to you that we are naturally worshiping people who think in liturgical ways, even when we say that we aren't. 
There is no such thing as a non-religious person. You can say you're an atheist or an agnostic, and yet you still worship something. You just don't recognize it. And just like the Nicolaitans in Pergamum, even Christians are tempted to go here, right? Jesus is praising these people for their faithfulness, and yet some of them are practicing cult prostitution and food sacrifice, eating food sacrifice idols. Those are acts of worship. And uh, the crazy, deceptive thing about idols is they take a good, God-given gift and make it an object of worship. And in removing the creator from the picture, they actually corrupt the gift. So, for example, with this creed right here, you take love is love, apart from the God who created love, Love simply becomes a word which with, with which we can give meaning uh, without any input from our creator. And ask anyone who's been following Jesus for a really long time. And they will say that love from God and for your neighbor and for God, even when your neighbor is an enemy or a really hard person to love, is far, far better than any kind of love any other person can offer. The world's love is fleeting and merely sexual and self-seeking. And we know exactly what this creed is telling us to do. Let me love how I want and express it how I want. This is every Western person believes like this. Every single one of us. It's, it's in the air we breathe, in the water we swim in. We don't always recognize it, but it's a defining ethic of our whole culture that we make idols out of all the time. Or, or what about the ones here that regard human dignity? There's a number of them. What an amazing thing to be made in God's image, and therefore we are the crown of God's creation. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, all made in God's image. That means every person is worthy of dignity and worthy to be pursued with love. But what if we take away that distinction? What if humans are just fundamentally, at our core, a really successful part of the natural selection process? What if that's all we are? Human dignity just becomes an illusion. There's no reason, zero, that we shouldn't treat others like cattle or dogs or dolphins or any other animal. That's all we are. Or any reason why we shouldn't climb to the top of the social ladder, because I'm top dog, you know? You're just a bunch of animals. But that's not the way we are. Um, those people might say that, oh, look, look at all that humans have done. We're pretty amazing. I mean, look out here. We built all these buildings. We made all this art. Ashlyn was saying, I want those triangles for my classroom. They're just so, all like the little things, the little things, and the big things, the big amazing things. But what of the horrors? What of the slavery and the injustice and the wars and all the ways we've broken God's commandments. These are terrible and glorious at the same time. It's kind of crazy. And we're not gods either. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of what Rebecca McLaughlin calls secular creeds. And it's not just like this political leaning or this, I, I don't know this person, but whatever they believe, there, there are other opposite versions of what American conservatives idolize. And, you know, 10 years ago, these creeds would have been different. 10 years before that, they're different. 10 years before that, they're different, and so on. So my question, if we're thinking, are we going to worship well? 
is, where do these idols come from? And the answer is human hearts. Human hearts manufacture these idols. They're not from God. They are from Satan, but he, he, plays, he plays on our hearts, plays on our desires, the things we're tempted to love more than God. He knows us so craftily, not intimately like God does. He knows how to get at our, all the little things we want to get to turn away from him. They may be idols of sex, health, human rights, but behind these are the super idols of consumerism and politics and division. We love these things. They may be idols of money or fame, social media followers, entertainment, or they could even be our own children. (laughs) Uh, Anything can become an idol. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand the heart? I love this quote from Calvin. He says, the human heart is a factory of idols. We just keep churning them out every day. I'll give you two of mine as I was reflecting this week. One is food. Uh, my dad says that I have never forgotten a meal. Um, it's, it's so easy to have that be the thing to turn to when I'm bored or I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not that hungry, but I could eat and then eat like a three-course meal, right? We've all been there. We've all been there. But this is a temptation for myself. And uh, shout out to all the guys who have been, we've been working together to exercise and eat well, all those things. Another one is comfort. I want a comfortable life. Just going to be honest. Uh, I like thinking about myself in ways that are, I, I'm evangelizing more than I am, I'm getting out of my comfort zone, I pray more than I do, spend more time in the Word, more time doing all the things that, uh, you know, the ideal Christian does. And uh, maybe that's another idol, I don't know. But uh, a lot of days I just choose the comfortable alternatives. Both of these are good things, food, comfort, but uh, they're not God. And what I don't want to do is legalistically coerce you all into giving up all the good things God has given you. Uh, Maybe with a lot of our heart idols, we need to realize that they're an idol and recognize the thing for what they are. Um, When he tells people to stop worshiping Zeus, he doesn't say stop living under the sky. Or when, if someone worships Aphrodite, who's the goddess of love and marriage and all that stuff, lust really, Jesus doesn't tell us to stop loving people. Rather, in this passage, in, in Revelation, he points us to himself. That's his solution. He points us to himself. And maybe for you, getting rid of your heart idol is getting rid of the thing. Maybe that's all you can do. But if you just do that, that's not enough. Because you're just going to find another idol. I'll, I'll find another idol if I just fast all the time and, and uh, beat myself up. I'll just find another idol and because uh, we're worshiping creatures. That's how God made us, to worship. Uh, the, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The human heart has been the same since the fall, rebellious to God. The question, will you worship rightly? has been a resounding no for every single person since the fall, you and me included, except one, Jesus Christ. And if you've been following my argument, you probably realize by now, oh no, my hands are full of idols and I don't know what to do with them. Or or maybe you do, maybe you do, if you've been following the scripture, which is even better than following my argument. 
Maybe you're saying, I don't know how to live without this thing in my life. I don't know where to get my satisfaction from. Or maybe you're saying, I desperately want deep communion with the Lord, but I just keep coming back to this idol again and again, back to this false teaching. I don't know how to stop. Or maybe you're like, you know, I'm not the one worshiping with the Nicolaitans, but my neighbor is. I'm really concerned for them. How can I love them well? Jesus gives us the solution to all idolatry. He points us to himself. It's not pointing us to another idol, but to himself. And part of the glimpse he gives us of himself is terrifying. A sharp, two-edged sword comes from his mouth. Why his mouth? Because all it takes to slay his enemies is a word. He doesn't draw a sword from the ground like Arthur or doesn't have a paladin bring it to him like Goliath. He doesn't need anything or anyone from this earth. All he needs is a word from his mouth. He created the world with the Father and the Spirit by his words. He upholds the cosmos by the word of his power. He can create and destroy worlds in an instant. And John says that Jesus will come and do battle with all those who believe false teachings of idols. This is a war he can't win. He can't win. But he doesn't just give us doom. You know, to to be facing the sovereign God of the universe with a sword is a terrifying thing. But he also gives us great hope, greater than we can ever imagine. He says, therefore, repent. This is the thing he said to all the churches up to this point, and he will continue to say. What does he mean? Repent. He will give you mercy. Already, he's giving you mercy right now. As we're breathing. He loves us. So we're made in his image. We carry his very stamp in our, at the core of our being. And, you know, repentance isn't a one-time thing. Whenever the Bible says repent and believe the gospel, that's a lifetime of repentance. It's not about perfect repentance. It's just coming back to Jesus. He's the one who's worthy of our worship. And, and, totally glorious, more than we could ever imagine. If we beheld him right now, we would fall on our faces if dead, like John. Whenever we see our heart idols, whenever we see false teachings, we can have confidence that Christ has forgiven all our iniquities at Calvary, and he was victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death, because he rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and even now is exercising authority over the nations. He gives us confidence that we can have eternal life with him, with him, the God of the universe who wields the sword from his mouth, who slays all his enemies and will bring about justice, turns us to fight on our side. He fights on our side. So we actually can slay these idols and actually truly can worship him. And he ends with a glorious promise to the one who conquers, who remains faithful to the end, who repents of their idolatry. He promises hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. Do you know what this means? Manna was a sign that Israel was in the wilderness awaiting the promised land and a means of God's provision. That means God's providing for us now. It also means we're in the wilderness. We're awaiting our our promised home. Some of it has come. We get a taste of it. Um, And also the idols of the nations that are around us, because Look outside. Look at the billboards when you're driving on the highway. 
says every idol of our culture is on the billboards. Um, they're tempting us constantly. But it's only Christians who get the hidden manna. That's why it's hidden. The rest of the world doesn't get this. It's for us. We get to partake in Christ. Only those who have Christ get his hidden bread. They're the only ones who get it. It's a foretaste of what's to come. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have tasted of this promise. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit or when you feel deeply the Father's love for you, when your heart longs for your heavenly home, and especially when you take this bread and this cup, you get a tiny taste of that hidden manna. And corporately, together, we experience this in fellowship. It's even more glorious. We feast together. And we also get a new name. Isaiah 62, 2 through 5, says this. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no, no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a woman, shows up, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, shows, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, I think this whole new name thing applies to the church. We are the bride of Christ. No other religions get this. No other idols stoop down to love their people. They don't even have people. They just kind of do whatever they want. God does this to us. Christ came in the form of a man to love and save and redeem a bride for himself. Nobody else gets that. What an amazing privilege. We get his name written on our hearts, his law written on our hearts. Christ has uniquely chosen the church to be his bride, to be a crown of beauty, a royal diadem. He has chosen us, us, the global, multi-ethnic church from all of time. He chose us. You know, when we turn to false idols, we are just like those people in South Asia, sticking our coin on the wall, hoping it sticks. Come on, give me what I want. I hope this time it works. And you know, when that idol fails, we just move to a different part of the wall and stick another coin to it. That's all we do. But the promise of Christ is that we get something way better. We get the God of the universe. If you are not a Christian, you're hearing this today. I offer you two things, a warning and a promise. Jesus is jealous for his name. Very jealous for his name. And he will not tolerate idolatry and false teaching forever. But the promise is equally true. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who listens to Christ and repents of their sin, will be saved. And Christ, the one who wields the sword from his mouth, will turn and make you, well, he'll turn you and make you on his side. And slowly start working in your heart to Take away the idols and bring you to worship him better. And for those of us who are in the church who worship God, Christ is on our side. Serpent can't win. You know, as much as he tries to put his image out there with all these idols, God's done the same thing. He puts his image out there too. He says, 
Just look at your neighbor. That person is made in my image and shows that I am king of the universe. So anytime you see your neighbor, you are actually getting a glimpse of the image of God and a reminder that God is king, sovereign, and Satan is, he's done. He's, he's over. He's lost. Calvary happened. The resurrection actually happened. All Satan's idols are going to fall. All, all, all things that belong to Satan are actually in God's control. So the only image that will be left is the image of God perfected. At the end of time, when Christ comes again, the image of God will be perfected, and we will be taken up into glory with him. And you, me, all God's people, we will worship him around the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent your son to die on a cross for us, which is totally undeserved. And uh, would you help us repent from our idols and turn to you? And all the spiritual things that we put ourselves before fall utterly short. And uh, will we be reminded of your great care for us and your great holiness at the same time? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.